Hey everybody, welcome to Gray Malkin's Lane. Welcome to Gray Malkin Lane's third Patreon uh, unedited podcast episode, where you get to hear me make sounds like blah blah at the beginning. <laughs> I am uh, I am thrilled to be here with my good friend Derek Kunskin. Hi, Derek. How are you? Hey, it's great. How are you doing? I'm having a, I'm having a decent day. It's like. 106 outside right now and so I'm very happily in my little office with my ceiling fan on uh how are you doing it has dropped to 23 Canadian and it's raining outside that Uh, sounds lovely (laughs) it is it is um I I am into the new style for this uh, Patreon podcast and I would love to make the blah sound at some point during the podcast so I'm gonna hold that in reserve (laughs) I will be so ready for any mouth parts you need to make along the way uh so uh on patreon as uh listeners are are realizing we're just taking one character at a time i've uh we started with bernard the poet and then we went to kukulkan i had so much fun on both episodes and i know today is going to be a blast um today made me read some old comics i hadn't read in probably over 20 years and i was like oh my god these are ridiculous On Kukul Khan, like just as an asterisk on this conversation, did he have more than a couple of appearances? So Kukul Khan only appeared twice, but there is a pantheon of gods that represent Kukul Khan, other characters named Kukul Khan. And the the character El Tigre that Kukul Khan possessed did appear in three more comic books after. So we kind of cover the whole thing, me and Gabrielle. It's a lot of fun. and we're both formerly Mormon, so there was some fun, like, religious culty conversations, too. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, so today we are here to talk about one of the weirdest X-Men uh, villains. He was introduced as, like, a really big deal. It's a Stanley Jack Kirby creation. This is the man that fucking paralyzed Charles Xavier he is a throwaway forgotten 60s villain that has not been dusted off in decades uh most modern x-men fans don't even know who he is and i am of course talking about the uh the narcissistic alien uh, <laughs> uh lucifer derek do you recall when you first became aware of uh the lucifer story uh i think it would have been some reprint of x-men 9 um where Professor X is in his like, you know, tank chair. Um, and then later on, I think I got the the sort of collected edition hardcovers that they came out with in the 90s, maybe of the X-Men, uh, the Masterwork series. And then I was able to read issue 20, I think. I started reading the X-Men comics in the mid 90s and kind of slowly picked up everything over the next decade. But there was a series called Uncanny Origins. Mm, no, no, no. That was a series that explored origins. I'm talking about a series called Professor Xavier and the X-Men. And it, it ran for like 11 issues. And it was like modern artists drawing the original 60s books in like a cartoony style. Oh, wow. And uh, that's where I first learned of Lucifer. There was like a reprint. And I'm like, oh, who the hell is this guy? Uh, and he uh, he's very 60s. He's just like all of Stan and Jack's 60s villains. He's ranty and yelly and insane. Uh, he has a terrible costume. He is... it does have a pointy hat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's a, a point in his favor or not. Uh, now, just to, just to mention, the name Lucifer obviously has a lot of biblical implications. Uh, a lot of Christianity believed that that was the name of Satan when he 
I don't know. Uh, right. There's like the whole fall of Lucifer's storyline in biblical reference where he was the guy that I only know. I know the like the Mormon version of this story. So in the Mormon version, there was like a bunch of people living in heaven as like spirits and everybody's happy. And then God's like, it's time to test everyone. And we got to send them down to earth. And Jesus was like, send them down and I will save them. And Lucifer's like, no, send them down and I will control them. And God's like, fuck you, Lucifer. And Satan and Jesus had a war and Lucifer was thrown into hell and like cast out of heaven. This sounds way more exciting than the version I heard. Oh my God. <laughs> what was your version? Um, I don't think, I think I've only heard of Lucifer within mythic terms. Okay. And then in high school, I believe I was exposed to the poem. Uh, was it Paradise Lost? Sure. Uh, with the fall of Lucifer and stuff. Um, and then I, to, be honest probably it was through comics like i mean um as as a defenders reader uh, i would have been exposed to son of satan and there's all the demonology there and i think my grandmother had a book on demonology marvel has a whole bunch of devils from satanish to thog to Curious or whatever the fuck his name is enough to fit on a six-fingered hand <laughs> <laughs> I think there's more than six, actually. And, and they have this idea of like multiple realms of hell. Uh, and all of these characters, I think, are also called Lucifer. But uh, this guy has no connections to any of those. He's not some sort of demonic underlord. He's just named after the scary, you know, Satan guy. I, I think I heard on a podcast, uh, maybe it was Connor Goldsmith's podcast, somebody said, you know, one of the real problems with the X-Men in the 60s is they had no really good villains right they had magneto but he was at that point he was a megalomaniac and didn't have any of the nuance that claremont later gave him the sentinels only appeared twice and one of them was when the uh when the series was going you know into a tailspin so i think lucifer is part of that story of like just they didn't like he didn't land like a dr doom he didn't land like a vulture or an electro um yeah he never quite connected and i think all the titles had that i mean fantastic four number one is mole man who everybody knows and then number two is miracle man who nobody knows yeah uh, dr doom wasn't around till issue four i think stan and jack constantly had new ideas uh stan would toss out an idea jack kirby would come up with his thousand and tenth brilliant design and then uh some characters stuck and some char characters didn't lucifer is just one that never stuck uh, but yeah, he's not considered, if you go through your early X-Men books, I mean, the Vanishers overlooked, but remembered, Eunice the Untouchable, Blob, Toad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But Lucifer's that first guy, the guy from the first 10 issues that's just kind of tossed aside. We don't think about him at all, but yeah. I kind of love him. Uh, so he comes, <laughs> up in, he comes up in X-Men number nine, 1965, Stanley, Jack Kirby on the cover. This is the first big uh, crossover between the X-Men and the Avengers. Uh, we see them fighting on the top and on the bottom of the cover, we see Professor X uh, facing the threat of Lucifer. Xavier's in this bizarre like battle wheelchair. He's holding a gun on Lucifer, who on the cover is miscolored as green and orange. Uh, later in the issue, we see him as purple and red, which are his iconic colors, of course. Uh, page one, if you open the book, promises featuring the earth shattering threat of Lucifer. And we see Lucifer on that first page standing in a spiral seeming to demonstrate himself inside the earth, which he actually is in the issue. Uh, he's holding a massive bomb as like a chaos of 11 superheroes surround him, all the X-Men and all the Avengers. Uh, and it's a classic Jan Lee, Jan Lee, Stanley Jack Kirby uh, uh, creation. 
uh, it kind of feels like a big deal until you start reading this character. And even from his first appearance, he's a little bit uh, nonsensical. Um, Professor X is in the Balkans in Europe. He has been gone from the X-Men for a minute and he's gone to look for his, his secret villain that he promises in a future issue, he'll tell us how they're connected, but we don't know that at the time. Uh, he mentally contacts the X-Men as he's descending into the cave in his battle wheelchair with all kinds of crazy equipment to like lower him down. And it, I want to see Xavier in his tank chair so much more. I think uh, <laughs> I, I would like to ride that tank chair. I think it, I think it looks like a good time. But he's mentally contacting the X-Men. He says, and I quote, I have finally located the hidden cave of Lucifer. Now here in the heart of the Balkans, I faced my most crucial battle. It was Lucifer who lost me the use of my legs years ago. Someday I shall tell you the whole story if I survive the next few hours. And then he calls the X-Men to him there before he falls into a series of traps that Lucifer has set. Uh, the ground collapses into lava, which Xavier survives with some hydraulic extendo arms, which is amazing. He's Inspector Gadget in the chair. Uh, then there's a machine that shoots out dust devil tornadoes. I'm here for the dust devils. <laughs> One of them picks him up and spins him down and drops him in front of Lucifer. Uh, so at this point in your read, what are your expectations of Lucifer? Right, I'm picturing myself as a 60s fan. He writes a letter and is like, how the hell did Xavier lose the use of his legs? And this is the big story. This is the guy. I don't know. What what, what do you think is your reading? So are you asking me as Derek Krinskin, the sort of teen reader of 60s comics? Or are you asking me to put myself in the shoes of some 60s kid who is picking it up for 12 cents? I think you can take it either way. I think I'm asking you as like, on your first read. Yeah. So I um, I was exposed to the Silver Age X-Men through some reprints. And it was a shock to my system because I, my first X-Men were Burn Claremont X-Men and then Cockrum uh, Claremont X-Men. So, you know, the gear shift down in sophistication and the beauty of the art and everything else was, was a big deal. So I before I start a 60s comic, I lower my expectations, like it's just a gear shift down. And I'm like, okay, they they weren't at the, this is not the Claremont era, this is not Byrne, this is not Neil Adams. So um, for taking it like that, um, I think it's explosive, it's cool, it's energetic, it's kinetic. Um, it's got a lot of stuff going on. Is it silly? Yeah. But at the same time, it's the energy of the chair, the larger than life, you know, emotional anger issues of the villain, you know, all of that together. Um, or, or even Xavier being on a solo mission, which is- Yeah, exciting. yeah. And, and the, I mean, the promise of the cover is the promise of the cover. And, you know, my son is almost 18 and he still can't stop asking me who would be, you know, who would win, the Hulk or Thor. And this issue, like all of the Marvel issues really are- answers to that question, like, you know, would Spider-Man or Iceman win? You know, it's like always one of those things. And so having the Avengers on the cover with the X-Men makes me realize that, okay, it's something's gonna go down and I'm gonna see somebody beat somebody and that'll tell me something. I famously said on the podcast, my youngest will be like, who would win this one or this one? And I'm like, depends on the storyteller. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's what I tell, but my, my son doesn't accept that. <laughs> my, my youngest gets super frustrated. They, they just, uh, oh dad, give me, stop giving me the same answer. I'm like, stop asking me the same question. <laughs> uh, so describe Lucifer's costume for us. He looks like, a, like some guy in an opera. 
I don't know. I, I he's he's his costume is terrible. <laughs> so I'm going to look here at uh, okay. So Lucifer is basically he's got red pants, red tunic, purple gloves, a purple sash around his waist, a purple cape, and he's got like this red headgear that looks a lot like the Hydra headgear in the sense that it hides everything but just his must like the top of his lips and and his beard and assuming, um, assuming he has an upper lip well that's the thing we've never <laughs> seen him without a his mask and so for all i know the only thing that looks human is that mandible and the beard and everything else for you know could be like uh invasion of the body snatchers he uh he has if you zoom in uh, his eyes in most panels look like they're square i don't know if you mm -hmm. noticed that so it kind of shows that he's a little bit of an alien. His clothes are all way oversized and he has the grossest chin hair in comics. I don't, there's, look, he's disgusting. Uh, I hate- He's throwing it in a hurry. <laughs> I Which hate- is why I think he put in dust devils, not here, not only here, but also Doom <laughs> had dust devils. Like Kirby was on a deadline. He was drawing five books a month. Oh, is, yeah, a month. So, I mean, sometimes I bet you he's like, I don't have time to do this. It's going to be dust devils. I hate his costume. I think it's one of the worst. I will probably get him commissioned for my wall sometime just for sake of inclusivity, but he's like last on my list. Uh, this is a character who does not have a lot of appearances, but every time he appears, we learn more about his backstory. So at this mm -hmm. beginning here, we just see him as this world conquering guy. We don't really know what his motivations are until we get. So we'll kind of go chronologically here. Uh, Lucifer in his first appearance, he has a giant thermal bomb wired to his heartbeat and he warns xavier if you try to dis defeat me or if my heart is stopped it's going to destroy a whole continent and xavier realizes he's not joking yeah the x-men are up on the surface and at the same time thor's hammer has detected a threat in europe so he's spinning Ooh, detection system on <laughs> which i don't think that's a thing anyway the avengers have landed and Xavier has to convince the X-Men to fight the Avengers because if any of them make it down, Lucifer might be stopped and then the continent will be destroyed. So I think that's a heck of a night. Like having a dead man switch like that is a great idea if you're a villain. This guy, this guy means business for sure. He's uh he's ready to destroy the planet. He's he's doing the if I can't rule this, no one will rule it uh approach, which is you know, you gotta give him respect, I suppose. Uh, he says, here's a quote. Here's an example of how he speaks. Now you see, I, I don't know what my Lucifer voice is. Uh, I kind of want to make him like slightly British, but I don't think that fits. Yeah. I'm just going to talk in a mad voice. Now you see why you're helpless against me and you are the only one I fear. No other can match my brilliance. And so I am free to continue my master plan for power. I shall begin by attacking your puny X-Men who wait above so innocently, so in unsuspecting. So he's just very like ranty, monologuing villain. He thinks he has Xavier uh, helpless. Uh, he fires this giant ionic ray up on the earth. And we're going to remember this word ionic. We'll have a conversation about it in a minute. It's one of the first times it's used in comics, but it's something that is often used in Marvel. Uh, he shoots this ray up at the, the, at the X-Men, but Xavier is able to warn the X-Men in time to evade the ray. Uh, <laughs> Lucifer continues, and now that I have you cringing helplessly before me, I shall win my greatest victory. Your time has come, Xavier. Uh, but Xavier just zaps his brain and knocks him out. Just bonk. 
<laughs> so he's not dead. His bomb's not going to go off. And uh, Xavier's got to find a way to like perform some sort of surgery to detach the bomb from his heart. The stakes are pretty high. It's kind of an impressive plot, actually. It is. It is. It is also really hard to do a good story with telepaths around. Yes. Yeah. Unless you have some sort of immunity to it. I, I think, I don't know, you take like Captain America, Iron Man and Thor. Those are the three big Avengers. I feel like any story, you got to give Thor some sort of handicap. Otherwise, Captain America serves no purpose. <laughs> well, they powered up Cap in the movies, I think, too. Um, but yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. So with telepaths, you got to find ways to limit them in order for them to be effective in battle a lot of the time. Uh, yeah, this is a good example of that. I, I just read a, a Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. story um, where they had Mentallo in it. Mm -hmm. And so S.H.I.E.L.D. had to deal with these telepathic things going on and everybody was running around with these fishbowls or colanders on their heads to keep the telepathy away like a mosquito netting or something. And uh, yeah, it's, it's tough to tell a good story with telepathy. We're going to see an Xavier uh, fishbowl helmet in a minute. We'll be talking. Oh, yeah, about we are. It. Just like it. Uh, so Xavier disables this bomb while Lucifer's knocked out. And Lucifer wakes up and it's the threat's over. And he's like, it took me 10 years to construct this device and you've destroyed it within minutes. Uh, he's furious. And then Xavier just lets him go. At the end of X-Men number nine, the threat is like, even Lucifer is like, you're not harming me. I'm free to leave. And Xavier's like, we X-Men can never harm anyone. Like we, we are good people. And he just like lets them walk off. Even though Lucifer says he's been hiding in the mountains for 10 years, trying to yeah. destroy the planet, which is just super irresponsible. What's going on here? Uh, I look at the story telling method and Stan would say, Jack, here's my idea. Let's do this. And like, maybe it's a page, maybe it's two, maybe it's just him. Let's do this. Um, and then Jack comes back with the story and that's it. It's not like there's time for retouches or anything else. And so Jack obviously decided this guy walks off and very often you see Lee just trying to catch up with the dialogue to try and make the pictures make sense. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, maybe Kirby had run out of ideas by then, but the other thing is, <laughs> uh, what, what do you do with them? Like, do you put them in like human jail? Uh, do you put them in Czechoslovakian jail? I mean, up to this point, we, we think he's human. Uh, he probably would have to be turned over to the European authorities, given that they're in the Balkans. I don't know. He, uh, I, I'm, I'm now realizing just as we're talking, this might be the first story where the X-Men have saved the planet. They've, you know, they've, uh, they fought Magneto when he invaded a country. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. Vanisher robbed a bank. Eunice was a, a evil wrestler that the beast fought. I, I, this, this was like their first big world ending threat. Like Lucifer really ra raised the stakes now that I'm thinking about it, which is yeah. actually kind of. Although impressive. I think the stakes were only uh, the continent of Europe. Yes, except we're going to learn in a minute that he wants to control the whole planet. So yes. anytime they're, they're putting a hiccup in this guy's plans, I don't know. Uh, Lucifer comes back in X-Men number 20 and 21, the years 1966. This is the crux when Stan Lee is leaving the writing duties on the book and becoming editor instead. So in the middle of this storyline, Roy Thomas takes over the X-Men. When exactly did Lee leave the title? So he, he stayed on as editor, but his last writing credit was 19 and 20. 20 is a shared credit between really? Roy oh, and 21. I thought it was earlier. Mm -mm, nope. 
Okay. Roy takes over with number 21, which is Lucifer's kind of revelationary. It's when we look into his past. And that's when, uh, yeah, that's when Thomas takes over the book. And it is the high watermark of uh, Lucifer's publication history, I think. Which is not a high bar to set. <laughs> He's got a butte. There's a guy on a horse who gets frozen. Um, there's a big phallic shape that shoots mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, it's not bad as a high watermark for a 60s villain. My uh, my husband joined us when we reviewed that issue on our podcast. And my friend George Michael's with us. And we just... Uh, Corey's with us too, I think. And we're just laughing and laughing at how many sexual innuendos are in that issue. It's I love that episode. Uh, Porter Max Dude Ranch. I'll never forget. (laughs) But we're not here to talk about Porter Max today. No. So on the cover of this one, number 20, we see another split cover. It's really reminiscent of of the uh, X-Men number nine. Blob and Eunice are on the top fighting the X-Men. And on the bottom, we see Xavier standing off against Lucifer again. The caption box says, featuring the untold story of how Professor X lost the use of his legs. So we've had it hinted, and now we finally get the revelation. Uh, Lucifer in this issue has relocated to the American Southwestern Desert, which uh, we are going to go back to this location like six more times. We'll talk about that uh, in, in the rest of the episode. But this, this base that he's developed here. Uh, has been in the works for years and years. This is like his his seat of power. This guy's been on the planet for a couple decades, maybe. Uh, we're going to learn he's building a machine to mind control the planet. Uh, and uh, this is this is the base we see over and over again. He's used some technology to manipulate Blob and Eunice, who I think are crushing on each other a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he's uh, he's manipulated them into dressing as X-Men and uh, robbing a bank in order to discredit the X-Men, perhaps distract them. And uh, he's monitoring from a, the, the events from afar, trying to get Xavier to show up. Uh, I, I, I felt it was a very 60s thing to have the villain sort of ranting in front of TV screens as different images are being shown with no cameras around. Absolutely. I feel like we've seen that in every cartoon ever. I, that makes me think more than anything of, uh, oh goodness, uh, did you ever watch Inspector Gadget growing up? No, uh, I was a little, uh, that was after my time. There was like a villainous organization called Claw, I think, and every episode would end with this man staring at TV screens and ranting as he like petted his head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I would, it, it makes me think of Space Ghost. Oh, I love Space Ghost. Yeah, and there's a lot of villains there and people talking on TVs to each other. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Or even the old Justice League cartoons, like the Super Friends. Yeah, this, yeah. this is a common trope, the guy yelling at the TV screens. Um, Lucifer has a thing called a Mento Wave Receiver that he has used to detect Xavier, who has penetrated Lucifer's mental screen. There's all, all sorts of unfortunate verbs used in this issue, like penetrate over and over again. Uh, and uh, once he's located Xavier, he's then able to fire a giant penis tower into the sky and shoot a ray that has special gases to stop it from being detected, but also it's going to block Xavier's technology. So we're going to learn, we're going to see some ties into this. Lucifer's an alien. These aliens have technology that are used in mind control. So he's he's got all kinds of devices that can block telepaths or do different things to affect people's minds where he's manipulating Blob and Eunice, he's blocking Xavier's technology, and he's hidden in this base and nobody knows where he is. That's actually a good good foil for Xavier. 
Yeah, he's a he's a pretty good arch nemesis up to this. Yeah. If, uh, if if I think he, yeah, I don't, I I I have not given thought to what could they have done to make him a real something. I think maybe with a little motivation and dialing back the anger issues, they would have helped. Um, on the phallic shape of of like his tower, like yeah, it's super obvious. But um, I tend to like as a point of policy say, okay, I'm going to forgive most phallic shapes because engineering says you've got to put one brick under another brick under another brick. So that does tend to make towery sort of things. In this case, this this goes way beyond that. With <laughs> so so yeah, it's it's way closer anatomically to. Uh, a normal there is i mean there is a mushroom head on the top that shoots <laughs> stuff out there it's you know i also uh this is this is a conversation for another time but i read some articles years ago on architecture and male obsession with building things big and tall very phallic like and there's been studies done that if female were put in charge of architecture that the uh the structures would le less likely be tall 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 and more open and inclusive and expansive which is an interesting thing because you know men run the world for whatever purpose historically and it's uh it's interesting to see how uh how society has developed as a result i don't know it's uh the whole world's phallic <laughs> well again there is a certain engineering logic to just you know if real estate costs this much and you can build up rather than sideways, uh, it saves you some money. Yeah, interesting. I don't know. Uh, but this guy, yeah, this, this, if you look at this panel, there's a full page uh, eruption of this penis coming out of the ground and firing this ray in the air. It's, uh, it's a lot. Uh, but Xavier, how's Jean Grey help him construct what they call a mental wave amplifier? And then he tells uh, Gene his origin story, or at least part of his origin story. Uh, Derek, tell us uh, Professor X's adventures in Tibet. What happens? I, I love seeing Charles walk around with legs and stuff like this. And, you know, you get so used to people being tough, like Wolverine or Colossus, or being fast, like Storm or Nightcrawler, being able to blow things up, like Havoc or Cyclops, that very often I've always thought of Xavier as quite fragile and yet when he's got nobody else around him you think what's he going to do and and he goes through this series of, of things where he, he approaches these people and he's like well something's fishy going on I can feel their fear or whatever in this uh what is it this Himalayan community yeah yeah he's in like a little city in Tibet he can sense yeah. that wrong so yeah it's it's um I gotta say I dug that part because seeing Xavier in solo action is a little bit like seeing Gene in solo action. Like when we were doing that Bizarre Adventures 27 or when, you know, she was fighting Fire Lord. Like it's just, it's just odd to see them on their own, but odd, but fun. Uh, the the last issue of Immortal X-Men that just came out featured Emma Frost and the way Kieran Gillen's taking these different power sets and using them to kind of inform us about who these characters are and what they use. And you can tell he hasn't done an Xavier focused issue yet if you're reading Immortal X-Men, but you can tell he's already kind of setting up the differences between the way Emma's telepathy works versus the way Xavier oh. works and how they utilize them. And it's a really interesting thing. That's something uh, Steve, Steve Orlando and I talked about too, is, is like when I've got characters who have similar power sets, I want their powers to work differently. I've got to figure out 
how that I how great. I find that in, and then how that informs. Uh, Xavier has never been shy about overusing his powers mm -hmm. uh, to whatever personal gain. Um, I don't know. Anyway, that's a side conversation. The Professor X of it all. I think I'm in early 2021 on my reading of, of the um, the Hickman run. So mm -hmm. I've been reading a lot of 60s comics and a lot of Star Wars comics in between, but I'm going to be getting back to X-Men soon, like the modern. There's some great stuff ahead. Oh, um, yeah. The it is good, it's, it's so streamlined. I really love it. Uh, so Xavier's finding these citizens. They're under some sort of mental domination. Uh, he probes the machinery there, which is something he could do back then, and discovers that it's extraterrestrial in origin. So this is our first hint that Lucifer is an alien. Uh, it's being used to control people. Uh, Xavier gets some locals to help him storm Lucifer's palace, but he controls one man and turns him against the others. And uh, Xavier's on his own again. He's got to dodge traps. It's like very Indiana Jones. There's crushing walls and balls of fire and uh, in one, I think he like pushes a button and it fills the room with water and he's able to put the yeah, yeah. out and get out. Uh, but he, uh, oh, go ahead. It's very pulpy too, right? Like, I mean, it uses tropes in the story from the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, especially about the sort of white savior narrative uh -huh. where you've got the one guy and everybody's like, oh, we will follow you. You know, I don't think they say white man, but like it's it's in the subtext. Well, it's in the real text. But um, yeah, it's it's all about the it's a Tarzan story. Yeah. It's a Buck Rogers story. It's uh, John Carter uh, on Mars. Yeah, John Carter of Mars, mm -hmm. although I have to say I'm a huge fan of John Carter of Mars. But um, but that hit me because of Marvel Comics back when I was. But anyway, like that's one of the things that bugged me about this issue just like how antique the sort of thinking was um but again they were pumping these out you know and they were trying to make their their deadlines so you know i i get that they were not trying to make that they understood completely that they were making disposable literature yeah, and it's really yeah. interesting to think how people think about what happens when you're making really ephemeral stuff yeah so uh, we're back in the past still. Lucifer's realizing this guy, this bald telepath that's in his city is a formidable threat. Uh, but just then we see him get a telephone call from space and the Supreme One appears on the on the television set. Uh, now, the Supreme One, that's what you have your girlfriend call you in the privacy of your home, correct? <laughs> I'm going to ask my girlfriend to call me that and we'll see if it works. I don't think she will like that. <laughs> yeah, I, she may laugh at me. <laughs> so this guy looks a lot like Lucifer. He's got the same square eyes and the same terrible chin hair, but he's in green and yellow and he's got like little lightning bolts on his head. Uh, so so I didn't go to him looking exactly like Lucifer. I thought my reaction was the Supreme One's head is so big and he's got mm -hmm. eyes like Gowron from Star Trek, the Klingon Chancellor. Oh, and sure. when he's talking, all I could think about was, therefore, let the humans wait the coming of Dominus. Today is a good day to die. <laughs> uh, Lucifer's like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Uh, the Supreme One's like, what's going on? Some of our equipment has been destroyed. And uh, uh, Lucifer tells the Supreme One, there's been an uprising among the Earthlings, but I'll take care of it. And the Supreme One's like, fuck that. You've been in this place too long. Get out of there. Go to Sector B, which is in the American desert, which is where he goes next. Or maybe it's the base in the Balkans. I'm not exactly sure which one Sector B is because he ends up in the Balkans next, right? Uh, anyway, he says, yeah, uh, yeah. proceed there at once. Uh, Lucifer says, and I quote, I hear and obey Supreme One. I shall let these insignificant beings overrun the castle, but final victory shall be ours. 
And Xavier rounds a corner and sees Lucifer for the first time. Uh, Lucifer says he's an alien. And uh, he says, this will be the last thing you hear. Prepare to die. And then he drops a big fucking rock on Xavier. And it crushes his spine and uh, paralyzes him for the first of several times in uh, in continuity. Which is devastating. Like, that's a... That's, that, that's you know, stakes. Um the other thing is, uh, it's super in canon that Xavier is in pain all the time because of that injury, yeah. and that he uses his telepathy to manage that pain, so then later on when he gets a new body because of the Brood saga in space... And the Shi'ar um, resurrect him in a clone yeah, body. That, uh, it's, he can't, un like his brain has been doing 20 years of like constantly managing the pain, so now... He can't get used to his new body because his brain is still so primed to handle the pain. Anyway, it's just interesting to think about the extent of the injury too. Like, yeah. So Xavier's on the ground. There's a rock on him and Lucifer's like, oh, you survived. Well, maybe we'll meet again one day, but I am still stronger than you. And then he rushes away. And this is, uh, this is the big revelation, which again, when you stack it up with modern X-Men stuff, it doesn't seem consequential, but this is shaped the leader of the X-Men for, you know, all of his life. Uh, so there's a lot of consequences. Um, I bet you, I bet you that this is sort of as monumental to 60s X-Men's readers as, um, as it would have been, I think, what is it? Fantastic Four Annual 2 when they do the Origin of Doom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Because after that, you think about the character in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, Doom obviously became way more nuanced Xavier we see what his injury was what happened to him what his past was I think both of those like so anyway all I'm saying is I think this may have been quite consequential to readers well and prior to this we saw Xavier's background with Juggernaut and him being an orphan and going bald prematurely in the Juggernaut saga but yeah this 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 is kind of the first big revelation into his past otherwise uh, which, of course, we'd have to read 75 other issues to get all of the pre-X-Men history of Xavier at this point. They've added a lot to the mythos over the years. Um, so we're back in the present. Uh, Lucifer's saying that in Asia, he's recounting how he once developed control over an entire city, uh, but now he's ready to uh, to spread that power all over the planet, which is a thing his alien race does. We're going to get to that in a in a future issue in just a minute uh but they're now ready for dominus he he talks to the supreme one uh who says and i'm going to quote here at last our race has waited long to possess this inconsequential world for it shall be a stepping stone to galaxies and universes that can easily dwarf the paltry earth therefore let the humans await the coming of dominus so professor x puts a fishbowl on his head to uh to block lucifer's influence and then he takes off with the X-Men to stop his arch nemesis. So right now, at this point, at the end of event number 20, we don't know what Dominus is, but it's kind of the focal point of Lucifer's story in the next issue. Uh, we're going to learn that he's part of an alien race that has in the past gone to a planet, built machines that take years to complete. And then they upload this machine they've created called Dominus, which can only be operated by certain robots called the Ultra... Ultrabots, there's six robots, uh, and the only the on, their only function is to operate Dominus. But if they do it, Dominus will take over the whole planet. All people on the planet will lose their will, and then Lucifer's race can then conquer them. Uh, we'll talk about his alien race in a minute, but 
again, pretty formidable threat. This is something that's going to like wipe out the whole planet if they succeed. Those ultrabots, which are named after Greek letters by aliens, um, they're one of their other functions is putting X Men in a box. (laughs) One of the many people who love to put X Men in a box. Actually, Uh, that's also the last time that happened was by robots, too. I guess Magneto puts them in spheres. That's true. Yeah, the Sentinels put them in a plastic box, and then yeah, yeah. And then, uh, yep. They that's that's a big thing that uh, that happens in the Avengers a lot too. They they, oh, get, put in, they get put into tubes. <laughs> it's like okay. images of villains with tubes I, of Avengers. I behind. haven't read Avengers the '60s stuff, but I'm just starting to read the Fantastic Four '60s stuff now. Oh, they're, they're both so great. I love both the of Avengers. Them. Really? It's wonderful. In, in the same way that it's campy and silly. Yeah, okay. I might try because I'm listening to the um, uh, Marvel by the Month podcast because I've listened to all of your podcasts and I've listened to, to all of Noel's. And so now I've started listening to this other other one, which is Marvel by the Month. And they persuaded me to read Fantastic Four now. In Avengers number one, the Avengers are tricked by Loki into fighting the Hulk. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, are, are against the Hulk, which of course is a ridiculous fight. And Ant-Man summons a whole bunch of ants to dig a hole underneath the Hulk, who then falls in the hole. <laughs> <laughs> like, good job, ants! Like, uh, it's it's silly and wonderful. I love it. Uh, and then the second issue, one there is. The second issue is the ugliest Kirby creation. Uh, it's the villain, the Space Phantom, who I'm extraordinarily yeah. fond of. He's horrifying. <laughs> Anyway, the uh, 60s Marvel is wonderful. Um, So Xavier takes the X-Men to Lucifer's base. He's able to track him there. Uh, Lucifer sets up a giant whirlpool in a river to ensnare the X-Men. Then he sends uh, the Ultrabots to capture Xavier, who he immediately starts monologuing to. He, He says out loud multiple times, the key to my defeat, without saying it directly, but these robots are the only thing that can activate Dominus. These robots are indispensable. If I don't have these robots, I can't complete my mission, which is so stupid. What's wrong with him? <laughs> I think he's an entry-level employee. Um, because if you look at what happened with Xavier in his origin, um, you as soon as Xavier broke anything, uh, Lucifer's bosses called him up. Like they, they don't leave him to report on stuff being broken. They're like, it's been 15 seconds. You broke a teacup. What's going on? And and he's like, sorry, boss. And then he's like, I can do this. And we're like, no, go to the next base. I think he's an entry-level employee. I think he's still on probation. This guy is being micromanaged for sure. Oh, yeah. 20 hey. years on the job. They still don't trust him to do anything. <laughs> uh, so Lucifer shows like a film strip of the past uh, of, of his alien race. He like shows Xavier a slideshow, which is wonderful. And here's the quote talking about his origins. He says, Behold the scene of our last conquest, a planet of the star Sirius. Once it boasted a great and advanced civilization, now its inhabitants serve us as mere automatons. And so with that once mighty race now reduced to servile slavery, Dominus has been sent here. Soon your puny sphere shall share the fate of countless worlds before it. Thus it shall ever be, for it is our destiny to command. I always get a little British with these guys. Uh, now note this, this planet of Sirius or the Syrian race uh, is also in uh, Avengers volume one, number 36 and 37. If you want to go learn about the Syrians, with, uh, I think it's Princess Ixar, 
there's some fun 60s stories, but I don't think they've ever been shown outside of that. I think, uh, I think uh, Sirius is a really hot star. Mm -hmm. Speaking as a sci-fi writer, I think it's a hot star that would have a hard time having life around it. So the Syrians in Marvel must be pretty weird and used to like super hot suns. Ixar is pretty fucking weird to look at. Uh, okay. The Is Sirius like a star system? There's a star called like Sirius. Alpha Centauri. Is it? Oh, it's, it's it's a star called Sirius. So anything in that realm would be, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, so tell us how X-Men number 21 wraps up. Like how do the X-Men defeat Lucifer's threat to dominate the planet? It's pretty so, uh, the X, first of all, I got to say the inside of Lucifer's base is so cool. And this, oh, is yeah. this is exactly the kind of stuff that I would be building with Lego as a kid. Like this is arcane. You've got just stairs going up with no railings. And it's just like almost, it's not Escher-esque, but it's like Escher with logic. Anyway, so much fun. So And it's, and it's massive, which we're going to see in other issues. Like yeah. this thing is like... It's like a skyscraper under the earth. It's like a, it's like a whole base. If you're going to control 4 billion minds, I can see that you're going to need some computational power. And so you've got a big computer. In fact, the, the thing is, though, Professor X figures out that if the X-Men try and harm the machine, they'll trigger its defenses. So he's like telling them with his mind, guys, don't do it. And then this is an interesting piece because the conceit of the story is that you can't tell somebody's voice in telepathy. All you can hear is the, the thought. And so they can't tell if it's professor or if like somebody else is doing it. And so Angel's like, screw this. I'm going to, you know, I don't believe. And then Scott has to shoot him in the back, which happens, you know, frequently. Um, and, but then uh, the X-Men hold fire and the, indis the, the indispensable robots uh, come straight at the X-Men and the X-Men duck out of the way like matadors and some of the robots get destroyed and then some of the robots get destroyed by reflected fire and then it like bounces off of Iceman's ice shield and like kills one <laughs> he made some pretty shiny ice yeah no and then once the six uh, robots alpha through you know gamma delta epsilon yeah. foxtrot <laughs> um, once, once they're all destroyed once again, the micromanager from Sirius calls up and he's like, what did you do to my machines? And uh, he's like, I'm sorry, I didn't do it. It wasn't my fault. And he's like, you're fired. Um, so, so then the whole base is sucked up into another dimension. So you, that's what you think happens, at least. So Lucifer is banished to the nameless dimension. And uh, I don't know why they just can't send more robots, but they're done trying. Like, get out of here, man. You're done. I, I got the impression from the subtext that those six robots were it right and without those robots they can't even run the machines on the planets they've already got oh oh like you've doomed that, all of our civilizations yeah that because he was like you've screwed it up for everything now i thought it said so but i could be wrong that could be my read so that's it lucifer's done in the x-men he uh he never shows up again i've i've heard theories that when they had the big onslaught saga in the 90s that they were considering making onslaught lucifer like that was going to be the big revelation but it never happened obviously they made it magneto and xavier's love baby instead <laughs> I, I think it would take a lot of tlc to turn lucifer into a meaningful villain like if you look at what claremont did 
he slow played Magneto, Magneto in 104, then in 112 to 114. They showed him in a few cameos in 125, 126, before finally revealing him in like 149. And that's when Claremont, you know, of course he was, he always was just leaving plot threads everywhere. Finally revealed, you know, Magneto was a child of Auschwitz and everything else. And, you know, so I think it would take him being cool over several appearances before he, you know, Lucifer would end up being anybody good. We'd have to give him like some sort of tragic backstory and make him like turn against his alien race in order to to be valid. I, yeah, it would. I think you could do some things with this character. Uh, dusting off sixties villains is a is a challenge for any writer, I think. But I think you could make him sympathetic. I, for example, they didn't change Garak the Petrified Man very much between X Men one sixteen and X Men what was it one forty eight or something. They just melted half his body, and <laughs> I think it was Magneto Magneto who said, "You stay here and guard my stuff, and I'll keep you from dying," and something like that. And um, so there, they didn't change direction. They didn't give him a new motivation, but he was he was obviously you know horrifically scarred by having fallen into a lava thing and and so on so in the late 60s things at marvel started to change a lot stan and jack weren't controlling everything it's now a team of writers the the books are getting bigger and i think you have a monthly schedule and in every book writers either had to take an old villain that had already been created and continue their story which always meant you know like the vulture was in jail. So now we have to tell why he got out of jail before he can fight Spider-Man again. We've always got to pick up where the thread was left, right? Writers were really good at that back then. Hmm. Or you created a new villain. And so in the next few years, we see examples of places where he probably doesn't even belong. Writers needed a new villain for the new story. And they're like, well, let's pick that guy. Oh, he was banished to this nameless dimension. So we have to come up with a reason why he's a threat. So in 1969, Iron Man number 20, Archie Goodwin and George Tusca, who, of course, we love from X-Men, uh, uh, pick up Lucifer to use as an Iron Man villain. Uh, years have passed for him. He's stuck in this weird dimension all by himself, but he has just enough equipment to build uh, something he calls a dimensional transmitter, which he can use to project his consciousness or his astral form, but not his body into earth. And it takes him like years of practicing before he can finally send his, uh, his body forward. And he establishes mental contact with a, a guard who works for Tony Stark uh, named Charlie Gray. Derek, tell us about Charlie Gray. I think he feels like, you know, he's, he's one of those guys who his best years were in high school. And, uh, you know, now he's a, he's a security guard, not very satisfied with it. He's got a clunky old car, his wife and two kids, you know, he's, he's, he's thinking there should be more to his life than being a security guard. Um, and so he's, he's like resentful of, of where he's gotten and where he hasn't gotten it. Uh, I think Lucifer says that that's one of the reasons why he's more susceptible to this and why he, he, uh, he might also say yes to this power that Lucifer's offering. Yeah. So Lucifer wants someone's body to possess and he senses this bitter discontent guy who's just so unhappy in his life who was literally just screaming at his wife and kid about how awful he is, his life is. Uh, and uh, Charlie Gray agrees to, uh, to take on Lucifer's form. Uh, 
<laughs> Lucifer is mean to this guy too. When Greg hesitates, he's like, you pitiful fool. Uh, uh, <laughs> you'd do anything to not be the chunk of nothing that you are, which is so harsh, but it works. It, it, ultimately, this I read this story and I was like, this is weird and whatever. But Archie Goodwin wrote this. Um, and in the end, there's an actual character arc in this story. And it's Charlie Gray's story. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, you're right. Like Lucifer's an abusive dick, but um, it's part of Charlie's arc. And I thought actually, after I finished reading the story, that, you know, because not every story in the 60s has an emotional anything, right? A lot of it's very transactional. Um, but this one actually had an emotional arc for somebody. So that was good. Yeah, it's kind of a good done in one story. So Lucifer's plot here, I'm going to control this body. I'm going to make this guy go to Iron Man so I can get him to use a component on that side that will allow my full body to escape this dimension and return to earth. Uh, Charlie Gray is overcome with power. He like lashes out. Wilma, his wife sees him and is like, oh no, I recognize you even though you look like Lucifer. And she runs to Iron Man for help. And there's a... There's a big battle and ultimately Wilma convinces Charlie to snap out of it and Lucifer's repelled back into the nameless dimension. Now, Charlie is firing ionic rays from his hands. So we see that word ionic again. Uh, uh, there is an element of ionic rays in a bunch of old Marvel comics, most prominently in Avengers number nine, where Baron Zemo uses ionic rays to turn actor Simon Williams into the superpowered Wonder Man. And Wonder Man is immortal, and he has extraordinary power that can be connected to size changing and flight and super density and super strength. Uh, the villain Count Nefaria is also famously associated with ionic powers. Uh, and if you fast forward all the way into 1999, there's a Kurt Busiek story where Count Nefaria is going around to people who have been impacted by ionic rays, and he's absorbing these ionic rays, which then kills the people. So I may be telling you for the first time here, Charlie Gray comes back in that issue. Oh, wow. Count Nefaria seeks him out and drains the ionic energy that remains in his body and kills him. So this, this guy shows up one more time in 99 just to get murdered by Count Nefaria. Uh are, so two reactions to that. The first is, did you learn that because of your work on the handbook? Uh, I, I tend to research things pretty deep and I've read all the Marvel stuff. So I just keep like little databases. All right. When a guy shows up, I'm like, wait, where did he come from? Oh yeah. So Kurt Busiek's one of those guys that loves old continuity. He'll pull people out of nowhere. I mean, nobody cares about Charlie Gray. <laughs> yeah, no. So, okay, cool, cool, that's interesting. I mean, the other thing is uh, it's it's super well-established that Stan Lee knows nothing about science um, <laughs> early Marvel things. I mean, Ionic, you know, comes from grade nine and 11 chemistry. Oh, um, sure. So yeah, it's, uh, there it is, kids who are listening, you know, <laughs> pay attention in grade nine and 11 chemistry. Well, and there's a lot more of the Ionic stuff uh, uh, that's been explored uh, in Matt Fraction's FF series. Uh, Ant-Man Scott Lang discovers how like Ionic power is connected to like the life force that Rick Jones can wield during the Kree Scroll War when humans have this potential to like, anyway, there's a bunch of tie-ins between all this stuff. When you get into Marvel science, it's crazy. So do a deep dig if you want to. We're not going to go there today, but it was worth following up on Charlie Gray for a second. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, it's also worth uh, going back to the old saw, which is in comic books, the the rules of ethics can never be, the laws of ethics can never be broken and the laws of physics can never not be broken. Right, right. Uh, well, in comic book science, suspension of disbelief has to take place. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. There's no there's no kryptonite in the real world that, that can depower aliens. Uh, so Lucifer shows up again five years later, 19... I forget which year. 1979. Is it 69? Sorry, are we talking about Iron Man? No, we're moving into Captain America. Oh, I think I that's think, 74. I think it's 74. So five years later, uh, Steve Englehart, who I've interviewed on the pod, and I think he's amazing, Sal Buscema are on Captain America. This is a period in Marvel's history when they first started featuring African-American characters. Uh, they were making them feature parts. So Captain America at this time was called Captain America and the Falcon. And this is a seminal run. It's super famous in Cap history. This is right after Captain America or Steve Rogers has retired the Captain America identity because he no longer believes in it. So it's a, it's kind of a crazy time. We also see a bunch of African-American characters used through this run as written by Steve Englehart and others. One of them's a, a mob boss in Harlem named Boss Morgan. Uh, one of them is a character we're going to see here named Rafe Michelle, uh, M-I-C-H-E-L, who is kind of a militant, like, let's stick it to the man and fight back. Uh, whereas the Falcon is like the social worker who's trying to be the, the good hero and get along with the white guys. Uh, so Rafe and Sam have this kind of interesting interplay through several issues of Captain America that build into this. There's a woman named Layla Taylor who's part of all that. It's worth going back and reading this old Cap stuff. It's, it comes across as somewhat insensitive because uh, it's written by white people. But you also have to realize this was kind of the first presence African-American characters were given in uh in marvel at all at this point and cap cap was a prominent title mm -hmm. uh you're right i on on the white people stuff like i went back as soon as i started reading this i was like this feels like a black exploitation sure adaptation uh like like that was the genre they were trying to write in in that moment superhero black exploitation because they did that with luke cage and i didn't realize they'd also tried to do it in captain america i don't know if it is or not because i haven't watched enough black exploitation movies but um yeah, it's it, um, it. It was a bunch of white people writing about black stuff, and uh, but I do appreciate that they were like suddenly the Falcon is a big deal, Black Panther yeah, is a yeah. big deal, Luke Cage is a big deal, right? And and that was not being done in other places. I've I've just been rereading as well um, the Kirby Ditko Spider Man stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can see right in there right away that like in, in I had not seen another 60s comics in that, that they were putting black people in character roles as well. And so I noticed it when it happened there as well. Yeah. So this is an era where we're starting to get a lot of black villains and a lot of black heroes and black politics are being talked about more. You're seeing people from different sides, like this guy Rafe that we're going to see in this issue has a very different viewpoint than Sam, which is great, who has a very different viewpoint than Morgan. So you have three black men in one issue that all come from very different spaces. So it, there's a complexity to it, right? Marvel was mostly white male heroes with very few women and no black characters for years. And refresh my memory, by now, do we have Luke Cage in the Marvel Universe or not? Yeah. Okay. And 
we also had the uh, Green Lantern Neil Adams run as well. That would have been mm -hmm. 1970. So yeah, I'm just trying to landmark where this fits into that because this would have been no more than four years then after the uh, the Neil Adams run on on Green Lantern Green Arrow. Yeah, and uh, and again, there's some really there's some really great stuff on these topics through this run. It's worthy of a it's worthy of a read. So okay. in this issue, Captain America 177, 178, we learn that Lucifer is still trapped in exile. Some more time has passed. He has built another dimensional transmitter, but there's this rare mineral in this dimension called a Cassadrax mineral, which if he uses it, will uh, will allow his machine to be much more potent. But in order to find the Cassadrax mineral, he has to train a creature called a Salaran uh, in, to be loyal to him. And then this creature will go retrieve the mineral and bring it back. So this is like- He's got a pet. Tell us what a Salaran looks like. Oh, hang on. I'm going to have to toggle to the issue. It's like, it's like a it's like a lion wolf. It's, it's, it's something. Um, like, yeah no i i just wrote down oh my god he's got a pet this is exciting <laughs> he's, um, the other thing i wrote down is is sam wilson has been going to the gym like when he gets out of bed it's like whoa that guy's been going to the gym so yeah it looks like a wookie with clawed hands and just crawling <laughs> along so this this Cassarax thing or Cassadrax, whatever it's called lucifer's gonna have some problems with it he uses it to transport his consciousness, but also a version of his physical form back to Earth. So he's still there, but also on Earth. That's the that's the thing I got. Maybe he's just on Earth. Anyway, he breaks. <laughs> he immediately starts ranting about world domination, but then he sees like a delicatessen, and he's like, "Ooh, candy! I need some snacks." <laughs> he breaks in there. There's literally a note from uh, from the editors about how his sweet tooth is going to cause some problems. And there's this great image of it looks like he's eating a fruit pie. Uh <laughs> I, I, I took it to be one of those hostess things. And I was wondering if it was product placement, like not seriously, but like because in the comics of that era, you had ads for hostess Twinkies and other stuff. And uh, yeah, it looked totally like one of those to me. It's adorable. It makes me laugh so hard. Uh, so while he's in this delicatessen, Rafe Michelle and his gang are breaking into the delicatessen to steal some money, apparently. And some cops get there and there's a shootout and Lucifer's like, I'll be your friend. And he starts firing ionic blasts. But he realizes... <laughs> that the processed food no matter maybe it's the refined sugars he ate are causing him to have some sort of problem it's changed his ability to stay corporeal in this dimension uh which is well, there's a lot of hand waving here but so you've got in if you go into the fairy land you're not supposed to eat the fairy food that's if fair Stephanie and you're going into the underworld you're not supposed to eat the pomegranates so I think if like we can squint and look at it sideways and say it's within a mythic tradition that it's, if you eat a hostess Twinkie while you're in a visiting a dimension, then you're going to have problems. It's so stupid. Uh, it makes me smile so big. I, it's, I don't know. Uh, so before he disappears, though, he grabs this character, Rafe Michelle, who's again a, an established character. He's been in Captain America for a while. And he like uploads his consciousness or combines forms with Rafe and who turns into Lucifer, much like Charlie Gray had 
but this time like lucifer has taken over the body like rafe is not a character anymore after this he dies at the end of this because lucifer took him over but he does have a beard and so mm -hmm. it there's the beard there under the mask which i think is super important to the uh, aesthetic yeah, so Lucifer's costume has like manifested onto Rafe, but Rafe's no longer part of the picture. It's just Lucifer controlling him. Uh, he also starts to realize this Casadrax amplified power is too much for one body to contain. Like I'm gonna die, I'm gonna like break to pieces. So I don't even know how he knows to find this guy, but he breaks into a local jail and finds the super criminal Ares, A-R-I-E-S. Uh, Quick, this is old Marvel dive into history. There's a villain group called the Zodiac. It's 12 criminal overlords who are each based on one of the signs of the Zodiac. We're into the second version of the Zodiac already. There's been many over the years. And this guy, Ares, his real name is Grover Raymond. He's African-American. He was once involved in a plot in Avengers number 120 where the Zodiac tried to kill everyone in New York who was a Gemini. <laughs> it's just so dumb oh. <laughs> and uh, anyway he's in jail now and and uh lucifer grabs him and uploads his consciousness so now he's uh he's rafe lucifer but also aries lucifer and there's two of them and he's lost his ionic powers but they're both super strong and two lucifers exist in the same world now uh shared between them and they immediately start like arguing over which one's the original lucifer and which one's the the carbon yeah. copy uh, what did you think of this story as we as we get into it? So I got hung up for a second because I'm like, why are the you know corrections officers letting the Aries guy keep his costume on in jail? But of course, the long term you, in Marvel, yeah, yeah, you need that for exposition. Um, no, it, it's it's a lot of ridiculousness, right? I mean, like there's the normal hand waving ridiculousness of plots and story logic, and then there's this level of ridiculous, which is going back to '60s ridiculous. Um, did we get to the point where um, where he calls the X-Men the execrable X-Men yet? Yes, except for execrable. That's a hard word. Execrable X-Men. I'm now waiting for that title to come out in the Hickman run. <laughs> you can have just X-Villains and, and it's like the execrable X-Men. I'm into it. I would write that book. Uh, yeah. So Lucifer is trying to figure out his spot. He fights the Falcon. He ends up agreeing to work for this crime boss, Morgan, who sends him to kill the Falcon. One Lucifer's got a beard. The other one doesn't. They and that's a big deal to them. Like one of them, there's like beardless one. And the other one's like bearded one. It's, yeah, they're like, this is an issue for them. So Lucifer, the two Lucifers return to the base that he was at in the desert. The one that we thought was... A, destroyed yeah. and he finds three more ultra route robots that are still working and brings them back to new york to attack the falcon and they're gonna uh, it, i don't know it's a nonsense battle but captain america gets involved he, he in his civilian identity puts on a mask and uses like a trash can lid to fight these guys it's pretty great uh, anyway, fast forward to the end of this. Story. It also shows off his bell bottoms during the fight. <laughs> it's it's great, actually. It's really fun. Uh, Steve Englehart's run on Captain America in the '70s is is delightful. Uh, I, I've heard that from a lot of people that 
the the one Engelhardt's one of his best run is is mm -hmm. on Captain America. It's, just, it's it's pretty revolutionary, especially when you look at what Captain America was prior to his run. He becomes mm -hmm. much more representation of of America as it is, as opposed to this World War II guy who's still living World War II stories in the sixties. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, it's the complexities of the world with civil rights and all kinds of things involved. It's 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 a good run. Uh, there's there's one character uh, in this run who's like a conscientious objector of of war, uh, which Steve Englehart actually was, uh, and so there's there's some really interesting storylines told with these different characters and different perspectives uh, during a time when America was at war with Vietnam and and there was a lot happening in the country. I don't know, it's good stuff. Uh, in the end, though, these Lucifers, the two of them, the Ultra Robots are destroyed and they kind of burn out and. Lucifer sent back to exile again, and we kind of never see him again after that. He uh, he is referenced in future books to have been put to death by his alien race because of his failures. Uh, but this guy might still be floating out there in another dimension. It would be pretty easy to bring him back. Yeah, I think it would be worth it because when like. I'm not sure Engelhart was taking Lucifer seriously because, you know, A, eating the ding dong and B, like when he first arrives, the, the, the homeless guy runs off and, uh, and, um, Oh, he's saying the Lord's prayer. Yeah. And, and he's like, my arrival is greeted by cries of poetry. This is not what I expected, but I'll take it. Um, I interviewed yeah. Engelhart. I did not ask him about Lucifer. I should next time. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, the, the Steve Rogers and Bell Bottoms was good. The Excribble X-Men just sounds like such a weird and great title. The Brain Blaster sounds like a bad branding for a cocktail. Um, <laughs> and I felt that the pointiness of the hat here had improved a little bit. Yes, it's a it's a slightly better design, although still awful. He just looks like some campy opera villain to me. I, I really hate this character's design, actually. Yeah. Um, I'm going to cover all the post-continuity in, in just very quick measure. So Lucifer's never been back, but a lot more has happened. Uh, in the, in, in the write-up on Lucifer in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, which was in the mid-80s, we finally learned that his alien race is called the Quist, Q-U-I-S-T, uh, sometimes called the Quistillion. But we also see them called the Arcane sometimes. So the Arcane is used a little bit more often in more modern books. Uh, this base that Lucifer uses is brought back a few different times. In 1987, Steve Englehart is writing oh, an incredible run on the West Coast Avengers. And there's a, 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 an epic story that runs over like nine issues called the Space Time Caper, I think. The X-Men, or I'm sorry, the West Coast Avengers go to the desert. We, and the Dominus identity, the computer from X-Men, has asserted itself and taken on a Lucifer-like form and he's created a whole bunch of uh, desert-themed supervillains that are called the Desert Dwellers. There's a guy named Sunstroke, who's actually a human guy who can control heat and stuff. And then he's created like a, a human cactus and uh, a, a rock woman named Butte and, uh, and uh, a, a lizard man named Gila. And he can clone these guys. He can create like dozens of versions of them. They're called the Desert Dwellers. It's, it's great campy 80s stuff. Uh, the West Coast Avengers fight them, and then Dominus, who's trying to take over the planet for, for the aliens, uh, uses Dr. Doom's time platform and sends the West Coast Avengers back in time. 
And the time platform's broken. They can only go farther back in time. So they end up in the 1800s and then in like the Egyptian times. And there's this great story that just takes them all over Marvel's past. It's wonderful. They come back to the present. They have a huge battle with Dominus uh, and they end up defeating him and, and the desert dwellers and Dominus like shoots off into space. Uh, Derek, have you read this like classic West Coast Avengers storyline? No, not at all. And so when I was reading this one issue, West Coast Avengers 24, I was a bit bewildered um, The because I tried to turn back because it felt like I was starting in media res and uh, I certainly was. But when I went backwards, I couldn't see how, like I, I went to issue 23 just to scan it to see like, what was I missing on the end? And it, like, that didn't help at all. You got to jump so, back to like 17 at the start of the story. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it, uh, it, it was, I, I got the point that um, it was not Lucifer, but it was Dominus. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it was weird for me because I was not, a, I, I, I picked up the occasional West Coast Avengers when Byrne was drawing it because I would follow Byrne's art here and there. But I mean, this was also an era of where I felt like they were really departing from the, the sort of classic aesthetic and so wonder man's costume is like a, a christmas elf um exploded on something i hate it, I hate it so much uh, <laughs> iron man's uh armor is red and white like it was only a year but it was so ugly and then hank pym was like a low rent phantom stranger with a red scarf um and i was Ooh. like these and and the other thing is like well and he attempts suicide during this arc like there's a there's a suicide him story during this it's crazy yeah I, and um, like, I think Al Milgram is a fine inker. I think he does great work, like when he's inking Starlin, when he's inking Leilola, whatever. Um, I don't enjoy him so much as the penciler because I find his figures awkward. There's, there's something like, it's almost like he's trying to channel both Kirby and Ditko at the same time. And so you get these odd positions and stuff that like just don't move energy and just look kind of odd. So I found that reading Milgram's art pencils in this uh, was was like pushing me out of the book a bit. Um, but again, Milgram, great editor, great inker, just his pencils aren't to my taste. But using these alien characters, this is the first good storyline. Lucifer's stories were nuts. This one's good. There's a classic issue uh, in, it's just super famous, Mockingbird, the character that's married to Hawkeye, yeah. is, is trapped in the 1800s because a villain or a, a cowboy hero named uh, the Phantom Rider is drugging mm -hmm. her and makes her believe that she's his wife. And there's the implication that he's been sexually assaulting her oh, or sleeping with her during this gross. time. And when she finally, when she finally comes to, there's a fight between her and him and he gets knocked off the edge of a cliff and he's holding on. And she has to make the choice to save him or let him go. And she lets him go. She lets him fall to his death, which ultimately becomes a huge thing between she and Hawkeye, who doesn't trust her anymore because she let a guy die. And then later his ghost is haunting her in the future. So there's th this, oh, is, wow. this all starts during this, this, uh, this storyline. It's epic if you haven't read it. Uh, so are you suggesting that I should read uh, 17 through 24? I would recommend it. It's it's really good. Because I read 24 and I was like, I have no idea what's going on. I recognize the robots and the stuff. And, and But then at the very end of it, it, it was a bit like the Wicked Witch of the West. You know, it's like, 
oh, I can't control Moon Knight. Now, I'm, oh no, who would have thought yeah, I had yeah, water yeah. in my house? But he does okay. use the mind control tech again. And, and yeah, that plot. So we're going to fast forward again to the last big story. Uh, Avengers Volume 3, number 12, which is one of my favorite runs of all time. It's Kurt Busiek and George Perez on the Avengers. The Thunderbolts, who are villains turned heroes, are looking for a base to live in. And they go explore the old Lucifer base in the desert. Oh. They go back there and it's huge. And they're like, oh, this could work. But the Avengers attack them because they're wanted. And there's a battle that breaks out. And when this happens, it activates an old failsafe. There's another computer program that in the case of uh, Dominus failing, there's another program called Dominex, which is then meant to destroy the planet because the arcane weren't able to conquer the planet. So Dominex activates and he turns the whole base into like a giant skyscraper body robot. And he starts like stomping down. He knocks the Avengers out with some mind control. Like I think they're called Somnarays. And then he's, he's marching toward a fault line to blow up. And if he blows up, it'll destroy the planet. So it's like this failsafe the aliens put in place. It's a great story. The Avengers, of course, stop Dominex. Uh, Lucifer, in both the stories I just referenced, West Coast Avengers and this one, Lucifer's origins are explored again. He doesn't come back, but it shows his past or his, his battles against Iron Man and Falcon and the X-Men. Uh, but this Dominic story drawn by Perez is gorgeous. I love it a lot. Wow. What what year approximately is that issue? Uh, 1998, 1999. Yeah. Um, I'll have to look that up. It's beautiful. It's really, yeah. really beautiful. The other thing I just wanted to mention quickly, there is a novel uh, written by Michael Jan Friedman called X-Men Shadows of the Past. It's not considered in continuity, but Lucifer and the Quist are the uh, enemies in that one. And that book is actually a decent read and it gives a lot of ideas. Uh, Lucifer traps Professor X in the nameless dimension and there's some cool shit that happens. It's very much true to his character, but it's fun to see him explored in that space. Uh, Derek, you're writing X-Men now and uh, you're tasked with bringing Lucifer back. What's the story you tell? Uh, I think, okay, so first of all, that limbo dimension, I was like, that's a whole subdivision. It's not just one limbo. I mean, Ileana's got one. Um, it appeared a bunch of times in, you know, Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, so I think there's something to be done with bringing him back Um and I want to take his helmet off because I want to see what's underneath. Mm -hmm. And I think he could be like, if you wrote him, like, I'm not sure Englehart was taking him seriously. I'm sure Roy Thomas was taking him seriously for the sixties, but I don't know that anybody's taken him seriously. Like, you know, he's, he's the vanguard of an invading alien species that infects you and changes the way you think and everything else. Um, I think there's, you know, if you took it from a horror angle, or if you took it from like a, a sci-fi angle, there'd be a lot to do with that guy. And I think we've seen some 60s villains who have been rehabilitated and turned into really, you know, like if you look at, um, what's his name, Woodrow from uh, Swamp Thing, right? I mean, he was a joke D-list villain until you put him into Swamp Thing with Alan Moore, and then all of a sudden he's really dangerous. Um, so yeah, I would... Uh, bring him back, explore that dimension a bit, take his helmet off, and then see what he wants to do now, because he's been the entry-level employee getting in trouble on probation this whole time. Um, let's see what he does once he's been fired and is like, I'm going to burn this building down. 
I think it would be an insane revenge plot against Xavier. He's going to come in ready to destroy the planet because of all he lost. Uh, I think he's finally back in Earth, back on Earth and like on his own and he's got to come up with resources. Uh, I think we need a backstory. I could see this villain being used again. Uh, he would probably come across as a joke though. I feel like this would be like a backup story in an annual where he comes in with guns blazing and is just like slapped aside by strong guy or something <laughs> it would just be this very simple uh he gets squished by an elephant at the end you know the piano i, I think if you wanted to you could take you could make him grab xavier maybe do something with the brood and then that's his way to go back and you know take over his boss's business sort of thing yeah um, yeah or even he's back on his planet and where does he fit because we've never seen the quest outside of their domination mm -hmm. on earth i think there's some really fun stuff to explore oh yeah and cosmic marvel has a lot of there's a lot of real estate on Cosmic Marvel. I am way more fond of this villain now than I was when we started. And that's oh. one of the fun of these episodes. Like it's fun to do this deep dive into this character that wouldn't qualify for a full Grey Malkin trial by any means, but uh, yeah. it's fun to give a little brain space for this. Uh, we talked much longer than I expected to, but I had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh, any final thoughts on Lucifer before we wrap up? Uh no, I think the, the image of him with the ding dong is going to be, you know, burned into my mind for, you know, days now. I kind of want to get like a little image of that and just hang it on the wall. It sounds, uh, <laughs> it sounds adorable. Yeah. Uh, hey, Derek, anything coming out for you? Uh, and where can people find you online? We always like to end with that. Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter at Derek Kunskin. It's just my name with no spaces. So D-E-R-E-K-K-U-N-S-K-E-N. Um, I've got uh, two science fiction book series out. One is The Quantum Magician, which is um, uh, basically an Ocean's Eleven in space, and uh, House of Sticks is sort of a godfather in the clouds of Venus. Um, and uh, no, other than that, uh, life is going well, and uh, I'm writing uh, here, there, and everywhere, and having a good time. Outside of being an intelligent, nerdy, wonderful friend who uh, who I've really just enjoyed over these last few months getting to know you, uh, you are an incredible talent. Uh, I've only read The Quantum Magician, but it is a whole universe you've developed, and it's so complex. Uh, you're a world builder. You're, uh, you, call, you called yourself on one episode a, a sci-fi space opera writer, which I love. I think you're an in, insane talent. It's really nice to have you here with me, man. Thank you. Oh, thank you. This is so much fun. And like I told you before we started recording, this is basically the first podcast I listen to every time one of your uh, one of your episodes comes up. And then after I've listened to everything you've got, then I go to all of the other podcasts. Thanks, man. We're working hard on putting some quality content out. Uh, our next episode, by the way, coming out with... Uh, with uh, Matt Horak and Susanna Polo is wonderful. One of my favorites. I've, I've got some great stuff. Uh, our next Patreon episode is going to be with Rob Salerno, who I love, uh, and we're going to be examining Iceman's parents. So there's going to be lots of conversation about the mutant homosexual metaphor of what it's like to be closeted in a home where people are ashamed of you. <laughs> so it should be a lot of fun. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you uh, back here next time on Grey Malcolm Lane.